every auction sale I did, I would spend the night before, the day before, walking the plant, looking at the catalog and understanding how things were lotted. And I would always work with my setup guys to make sure that they were lotted properly. So I had the ability to present the assets in a way with flexibility so that I could satisfy my buyers and move the sale along quickly. You know, thinking about buyer's choice and privilege and options and and the order of sale and how much I got for the last one. And I got one coming up in 15 minutes and who's in the, you know, and I got to get milk on the way home. And, you know, I mean, just the brain, the way it works. I mean, it's incredible. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Today's episode is part one of a two-part interview with Robert Levy, president of Robert Levy Associates. Robert has been an industrial auctioneer for 44 years and knows more about the business than anyone I've met. Auctions are fascinating and sometimes mysterious to me, so my goal in this interview was to get a glimpse into the head of a person masterminding these events. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.graff. P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. I am very honored to be with my friend, Robert Levy, president of Robert Levy Associates, a auctioneer, a longtime veteran warrior professional of the industry. Welcome to the podcast, Robert. Thanks, Noah. It's really nice to be here. I'm honored that uh, you invited me to uh, join you again. So thank you. Yeah, Robert was one of the first people on this podcast, and it was an excellent interview. But number one, I think I've gotten better since then. And number two, the auction game has changed a lot since then. Just in, We did that in 2018. Time flies, and it's, it's a different landscape in industrial equipment. And I mean, heck, it's a different landscape this year than it was last year. Things are changing, that's for sure. Things are a changing. So today, I want to learn a little history about the auctions, find out how it's evolving. And in addition to telling good stories in the podcast, I want to try to teach people something that's useful. And lots of our listeners bid for things at auctions or at least fascinated by auctions. And what better resource than to talk to somebody on the other side to get some insight and maybe maybe you can help us. First, I want to find out exactly what you're doing now, get the three-minute bio, and then we're going to delve into some fun things. 
Sure. Well, yeah, I've been in the auction business for over 40 some years. And and I really define myself not necessarily as an auctioneer, although I have run thousands and thousands of auction sales. And the auction sale is definitely one of my sharper tools. But given the specificity of assets, it is sometimes better to deploy alternative sales methodologies and sales processes than an auction sale when we're dealing with unique equipment. So while, yes, I do use auction sales very, very often, uh, I don't walk into a situation where assets for sale automatically should be inserted into an auction sale because, let's face it, our sellers want to maximize the recovery on those pieces of equipment. And sometimes an auction sale might do the trick. So it could be like selling the piece stuff piecemeal, like liquidation, or it could mean different creative kind of things? Yeah, well, when you have generic everyday assets where you have a large user base, an auction sale is a very, very effective and efficient way of selling assets. But when you have something that is more specialized, that has a wide range of potential value based upon the number of potential bidders at any one particular time, you know, there's negotiated sales, which might get you a better result than just putting something into an auction sale. What is a negotiated sale? Uh, you have establish a, a price and you, you attract bidders and you negotiate a price rather than just auctioning off. Oh, so you're saying just, uh, you're saying you're brokering an entire shop all to one person. Not an entire shop, but pieces, pieces of equipment. If you have a very, very, very specialized piece of equipment, and you may have one particular buyer in the whole wide world who's interested in it, it's probably not a good auction sale. We would know something about that. You might, but uh, I, I don't think that is really an auction sale scenario. Um, people use the auction sale in their minds. I, I think frequently they perceive the auction sale as a desperate measure. Uh, when you can't sell something, you stick it in an auction sale. Whereas uh, when you have a lot of action and a lot of activity and you have a good buyer base, that's definitely a time to use an auction sale because you have a good good uh, base for a good number of end users who are, or, or dealers and end users who will buy those pieces of equipment. Absolutely. But I'm I'm just trying to understand what you're talking about a second ago about an obscure piece that there's only one person in the world interested. Where do you come in? You facilitate the deal? Yeah, well, I'll come in and I'll take a look at the equipment. And, and you'll occasionally find those very unique pieces of equipment in a shop that has standard and generic equipment. You might have one or two pieces that have a potentially high value uh, that should not be inserted in the auction process. So we would market the assets and then negotiate the sale of that particular piece of equipment. And if you only have one interested person, let's say you have a piece of equipment that was designed and engineered, manufactured to make a unique product, proprietary product that nobody else in the world is making. Even hydromats, for example, uh, some of the hydromats are set up and screw machines are set up for very unique products. And there are times when a negotiated sale will render a much higher return than if you put it into an auction sale and have one bidder. Because well, we've seen hydromats in auction sales. And the, yeah, they don't exactly lend themselves to auction sales often. Not all the time. Sometimes they do. Yeah. Sometimes they do. And sometimes you're very lucky and you get the right machine, the way it's set up. And it's set up for a particular product that many people can use. But frequently, a hydromat is set up for a particular product that only one company can use. 
And you're probably better off negotiating a sale rather than putting it in the auction sale. But I will say that no matter what type of sales process that you deploy, the most important aspect of successful sale is your marketing campaign and reaching the right buyers and also attributing the correct time frame to allow these assets to be in the marketplace to allow for the creation of awareness of the availability. So you got to use somebody like today's machining world. Absolutely. I I use today's (laughs) machining world all the time. I happen to know them. They're pretty good people. Uh, (laughs) Well, what can I say? No, but it's, but it's seriously, I mean, you have to have a multifaceted marketing campaign to draw the right people out. I mean, you know, we had a sale yesterday in the screw machine and CNC world and the sale was, was a very successful sale. And the reason that we enjoyed the success that we had was because of an extensive marketing campaign and how we how we presented the assets to the world. And, and we offered it such a way that uh, we attracted the buyers and they could bid on the assets in such a way that they enjoyed and made sense for them. So you have to know what you're doing. Well, we know that you advertised in today's machining world quite a bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you are still a believer in sending out physical flyers. So yes, I do. Um, I know that the world is in the middle of maybe the latter part of the transition of moving from print media and brochures to electronic distribution. I hate mail. I mean, I would never get any mail if my wife didn't check the mail. But you're, you're a young guy. And I have a garbage can underneath my mailbox, too, by the way. A lot of the stuff doesn't even make it into my house. However... Is it dangerous because it could have your personal information on it? Do you don't shred it? Depends on what it is. You know, I don't bring in... You know, it's the junk stuff that I throw away. But, but having said that, I really believe that when you're mailing out a campaign or when you're embarking upon a marketing campaign, you have to create the campaign so that it addresses and hits everybody repeatedly and the way in which people who spend money get their information. You know, some of the older generations still like, I still like to look at a a brochure. If I'm sitting at my desk and I see a, you know, a brochure, I can pick it up and I can open it and I can look at it and I can see the pictures and I can see the descriptions. And I can also go to the website and I can also open my email, but having this sit on my desk is a constant reminder that that sales coming up, and it doesn't get lost in my email box that I forget about because we are absolutely inundated with electronic marketing today. And it's, Right, and we're, we're more inundated with electronic now than with mail. So maybe the mail stands out in a way that the electronic doesn't. I believe that there's a place in a well-balanced campaign. There is a place for print media. Yes. And I mean, I think that you may spend a couple dollars for each flyer you send out and just like... We may spend, you know, a dollar for a really good name we can get to add to our email list. And you think that that's crazy. But then when it comes to the machinery business, all it takes is is one person. One person, one person. With an auction, two people, right? Sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I I think I think it's very, very important that you consider the money that you're spending on your marketing as an investment in getting the right people to your event. 
if you don't have the right people to your event, you're, you're not going to enjoy success. Yeah. And that's for everything. I always defer to spending money on, on the marketing. Yeah. Right. Because it's small potatoes when you figure. It is small potatoes. I mean, your entire marketing budget on, a, on an auction sale, depending on the size of your event, and you do have to balance your, your expenditure to the size of the event. But if you're looking at a million dollar auction sale, you spend 30 grand on your marketing, 40 grand on your marketing, maybe. You get a lot of marketing for 30 grand. Yes, you do. But if you think about having the one or two right people at the auction sale, a machine that you figured for 100 grand could bring two, 250 if you get the right people there, you just made up your difference in a big way. For sure. Okay, this is great stuff about some of the strategies. I want a little bit of background on you coming up in the auctions. You, like me, come from family business. I want to know a little bit about your father and you and how you came up. Just a quick version to give people some context. So my father started Norman Levy Associates, uh, which was an old-time auction company. Uh, started in the early 50s, 1951. At a time that he started it, there was a lot of it was a dark cloud over the auction business because it was not accepted as a uh, respected way of selling assets. It was, uh, you know, if, if you ran an auction sale, two things. One, you were distressed. And two, there was a lot of corruption in the industry. A lot of, collu- a lot of colluding. Yeah. I mean, even the auctioneers were colluding with, with dealers and, and other auctioneers and and sellers, and it just was not really an ethical level playing field type of environment. And Norman Levy really uh, cleaned up. I mean, he had he had a very very high moral standard. He was an honest man, and he created a level playing field where people could come to the auction sale and be treated fairly and properly, and stand the chance of actually being properly treated. Um, so he actually developed. There were, there were a handful of, of national auction companies at the time. So he raised the bar in the auction business, and he really was one of the pioneers in developing that industry into a, a respected place and a, a savvy way of converting idle equipment into real money. And some of the larger corporations then began to use the auction sale process to sell facilities and plants and surplus. And, and we enjoyed that because... Uh, when I joined my dad back in 1980, he had already developed a very fine company and a great reputation. Um, my brother and I joined my dad, and, and we we really built out the organization into a global enterprise, which we really enjoyed. And I love the business, and I love the auction sales, and I love being on the stand and and just being um, involved in the creation of the solution. Recognize, I know what I'm looking at for the most part. I know how to sell the equipment. I know what sales methodologies. I know how long it takes to sell. I know what we have to do. And part of my biggest enjoyment is the creation of the plan and then executing the plan and also being in the front lines and selling. Because I I really enjoy that. I love meeting with my clients. I like um, very much in the dialogues and conversations that we have about strategy and why we do this and why we don't do that. And and it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, It's a dialogue. It's a partnership. Most sales are successful if you can manage expectations properly. Most sales are successful? Yeah, I guess that's a relative term. Yeah, it is a relative term. You have to manage expectations. And we look at equipment and, you know, some sellers, because they invested a lot of money, 
in the creation of and the purchase of and the engineering. And I think their equipment can is worth a lot more than it is. We're on the front lines every day and we know what assets are worth and how much they're selling for. We can actually provide very valuable information to our sellers to say, yeah, yeah, we think we can get you this amount of money. And, and there are times where our sellers actually know something that we don't know and we have to collaborate and listen to our sellers. I've had sales where, you know, they said, what do you think it's worth? And I said, well, I think it's worth 800 grand. And he goes, no, it's worth about 2 million. And I go, okay, tell me why. And he actually explained to me, this one particular case, he explained to me why. And I said, I think you're probably right. And we worked together to establish what our expectations were. And he was right. But what we provided was the vehicle. We provided the marketing and we provided the sales methodology to bring to a competitive bidding forum those buyers that actually enabled him to get what the maximum return would be. I do enjoy working with my clients. I'm available 24-7. This isn't a commercial. This is just me. Um, I learn from my clients and I hope that my clients learn from me. After 44 years, so many partners that you've worked with, I mean, you, you've seen so much, you're able to walk into a shop and look around and go, yeah, I think this parts washer is going to go for X. Now, of course, things change, values change. But I've always been impressed with auctioneers that go in and are just like, I think this is going to bring X. And I go, you totally pulled that out of your tachas. And they did, but it doesn't mean that they're wrong. <laughs> they're wrong, right, right. And in the swings and roundabouts, I think what you have to focus on is the total number because nobody can tell you. There's only one person I ever saw actually do it. And that was my dad. But <laughs> I've never met anybody that can tell you what every single thing is going to bring accurately. Uh, you figure a group of machines for 10 grand a piece, some are going to bring five, some are going to bring 20. But at the end of all of those items, you're going to get to the number, but not the way you expected to get to the number. Interesting. So, okay, your father was somewhat of a, you know, a renaissance person in the business. And I hear lots of stories about back in the day, the good old days where Graf Pinkert would go to an auction and, you know, nobody would be there and people would just sort of make way. And they're like, oh, they're just going to bid for everything, et cetera. Uh, are these stories true? I don't know. But it used to be more of an insider game for dealers than end users, correct? Uh, yeah, I guess years and years and years ago, it was more of a dealer environment. And then when it became a safer place to do business, End users were starting to come to the auction sales. End users found it to be a, a venue of buying equipment, probably for cheaper than retail. And they would buy things that dealers might not buy. For example, you have a lot of perishable tooling, machine accessories, and, and machinery dealers don't want to deal with that with, with little stuff. They want to deal with a machine that they can buy for 10 and sell for 20. But the end users who had facilities and shops and manufacturing looked at all looked at everything else and said, wow, this is all good stuff. So what we started doing was we, we, would, we would empty the cabinets and the drawers and we would line everything up and segregate and offer things in ways that attracted the end users. And, and they started to come to the sales and they trusted that they're going to be treated fairly and ethically. 
I think that was one of the first things that changed the industry dramatically when it transitioned. From- I mean, I remember going to some auctions in the late 90s, early 2000s even, and it was like an event. It was a cool thing where all these people knew each other. It was a cool scene. It was. It was brilliant. It was like a little a mini MDNA meeting every auction sale. We had the machinery dealers. We had the end users. An MDNA meeting, but all kinds of characters. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We had users. We had dealers. We had scrap guys. We had we had people that just like auction junkies that would come to the sale and we would, everybody knew everybody. And it was marvelous. I mean, I have photographs of you when you were first starting out coming to my sales and M&S Manufacturing, I have a really nice picture of you and your dad, you and I, the three of us were talking. Yeah, well, that was a little bit before me. And that was a deal where you were coming to Graf Pinker to get consultation advice and even thought about partnering. And um, they were all scared of it. And I think you ended up doing very well on that sale. We did extremely well. It was one of those, it was one of those magical events. And one of the things that's really important, which you bring us to another really interesting topic, is the reputation of the company and the people in the company does have an impact on the success of an auction sale. And that facility, Jim Sayer, who actually became a friend after the fact, we worked very, very closely together on on that sale. He had a wonderful reputation and everybody in the manufacturing arena knew of him and enjoyed him and trusted him and felt very, very comfortable with his his equipment and him as a human being. And that generated tremendous success. The, the owner of the shop, the seller. The owner of the, yeah, he was one of the owners of the shop, seller, yeah. Listeners, first, I got to tell you, I'm so grateful for you guys tuning in. I know we have lots of competition out there. Freakonomics, This American Life, Joe Rogan. Also, I just want to let you know, if you have guest ideas or questions for me or Lloyd, we'd love for you to reach out. And if you want to talk about future advertising opportunities, we're very happy to talk to you anytime. Feel free to email me at noah at grafpinkert.com. That's N-O-A-H at G-R-A-F-F-P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. And now back to the episode. Yeah, you told me another story about a shop with a guy named Charlie, a feel-good auction story of, I guess you'd call it the idealist lens of an auction. Why don't you uh, recount that for me? Sure. I, I kind of grew up in the screw machine world. I mean, my first auction sales that I became involved with when I joined my father were screw machine sales. So I've been involved in many, many, many screw machines and CNC shops over the years. And I really enjoy screw machine shops because I feel comfortable in them because it's a place where I began my early career. So one of the first sales that I had was a screw machine shop in Kenilworth, New Jersey. It was called Harvin & Co. And the gentleman who owned it needed to sell his business because he had some medical issues and he didn't feel comfortable running his business anymore. And he wanted to exit his business and capture the equity in his business so that his family would have enough money to live on. And uh, he called me up and said, come on over and please take a look at this, which I did. And he, he asked me 
which I would tell him normally, that's my normal practice, how much I thought the equipment would bring. And I gave him a range and he said to me, Robert, it's really important that we maximize the return because this is everything I have and I have to leave my family. I want to leave my family with with enough money for them to live on. I said, Charlie, I understand. I respect that. And I will do everything in my power to make that happen. And I call him up. I, you know, Charlie, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you, yeah, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. Finally, I don't know, a couple months later, he goes, all right, Robert, I'm ready. He goes, but you have to help me make a decision. I said, what can I help you with, Charlie? He goes, I don't know if I should sell you the plant or have you run it for me on a commission or a fee basis. I said, Charlie, I understand what your concerns are. I understand what your necessities are. And I will tell you that I think we've been conservative on our on our valuation. I think you would be best suited if you hired me to run the sale rather than selling me the assets. And he goes, okay, Robert, I'm trusting you. Go for it. And so what was in the sale? Acme's? We had Acme's, Brownies, Davenport, Second Up stuff, you know, the snow tappers and, you know, all the Second Up stuff, uh, grinders. And- How long ago was this? 80s? Oh, this was back in the 80s, probably 1985, a while ago. So I, I do what I do. We got the marketing materials out. And uh, East Coast can be challenging for an auction sale. This was on the East Coast. Uh, I go check in my hotel the night before the auction sale. And there's a, there's a guy that specializes in screw machines. And I ran into him in the, uh, in the hotel. And he had been at the plant all day. Oh, somebody that we know. It might be. <laughs> I walk in, he goes, Robert. Not my dad, though. No, it was not your dad. It was not your dad. He goes, Robert, you're going to die tomorrow. <laughs> he goes, nobody's going to be there. The plant is old. The equipment's dirty. And, and I go, well, thanks for making my night. So the next morning I go to the sale and, and I know how important it is for this man. And I'm like, there's nothing I wouldn't do for him. So I start the sale and we start with small stuff as we typically do to get everybody, you know, give people a chance to get there and get people warmed up and comfortable with the process. And, and we're down, we're down probably, I don't know, $10,000, $15,000 over what the stuff should have been. Cause it was a small crowd at the beginning of the sale. And finally I get to the first acne. We figured it for like 15 grand. So I asked for 25. And back then 15 grand wasn't a lot. Oh, not for a machine like that. No, but we figured them, we figured it for 15 grand. So I said, all right, ladies and gentlemen, can I get a $25,000 bid to start it? Guy raises his hand. Oh, And people don't normally even raise their hand, right? They let it go down. No, 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 no. People would wait because yeah, they don't want to be the first one to bid. Guy raises his hand. At 15,000, I asked for 17,5. Another person raises his, I got 17,5, not going to hear 20. The first guy goes 20. I got 20, I got 22 and a half, now 25. And, and it, I think we sold it for like $35,000. And I went, oh, thank you. We've made up the difference now. We're back to where we should be. The next machine, the same thing happened. And machines that we figured for 20 grand, we're bringing 45. Machines that we figured for 30 grand, we're bringing 75. And I get to one, and this was a lesson I learned. This is where I learned that lesson, the reputation lesson. I get to one machine and a and guy's bidding and finally he stops bidding. I go, come on, one more time. He goes, yeah, why not? Anything for Charlie. So what I realized was that Charlie's reputation was so strong and so stellar that all of his friends were there supporting Charlie. And they did it because of their love for him 
in the fact that he treated people well and they were there to treat him well. And it really turned out to be more of a, a charity auction sale than an industrial auction sale. So I, what happened was we figured the deal to bring, I think we figured it to bring about 300, 325,000. I would have bought it from him probably for 275 or 300,000. It brought over 700, I think it brought 750 grand. Right, and now that would probably be worth uh, a million and a quarter. But the point is that if Charlie sold me his plant for 275, I would have made half a million bucks that day. I walked out of there earning my commission and I was able to walk into Charlie's office with his family. His wife and his daughter were sitting there. I said, Charlie, he goes, what did we do? I said, Charlie, you had a marvelous day. This is what happened. The guy cried. I mean, he was, I'm going to cry now. He was so happy and I felt so good because I delivered him something that was more meaningful than anything that I could have possibly done. And I, I, I love that. I like doing that for people. I've worked with small family businesses. I've worked with large corporations. I've worked with cities and states and municipalities. And the, the, the place I get the most enjoyment is where I can help somebody who is the beneficiary of me doing a good job. Because I sometimes feel like in business, you can sometimes get too wrapped up in, in the dollars in let's buy this for X and sell it for X. And sometimes the purpose gets lost. And, you know, I'm sure that you have that happen to you as well. Well, it's how you keep score. And when you're doing as many deals as I do or did, I was running probably two auction sales a week for 40 years. Wow. And you do have to begin to kind of desensitize yourself. However, I mean, just a little bit. However, I like to believe I never lost my sensitivity towards what I was doing. And I like to think of myself as an artist. And I get personally and emotionally involved in what I do because my successes in what I do are, it's my signature. It's my legacy. It's you know, when I do a good job, it's like we, you and I were talking about an engineer who designs and manufactures really cool things to accomplish something that nobody else has thought about because they enjoy the process and they enjoy the mental challenge. Well, I enjoy the mental challenge and the emotional fulfillment of doing a good job. And I try and figure stuff out. Uh, and maybe that's why we get along well, because we have a really, really good dialogue and a discussion about theory behind why are you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? And I hope I didn't do this. And I hope I never will do this. Say, don't worry about it. I know what I'm talking about. Um, I've been doing this for a long time. So just trust me. Well, I, I don't think that's a really good answer. And I, I always find the time to have conversations with my clients so that they actually understand what our game gameplay is because it just makes it a lot easier, you know? For sure. So I don't mean to get off track, but it's it's insight into me and how I how I think and how I operate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um so we've talked a little bit about, you know, what it was in the bad old days in the 50s and then in the heyday of dealers in the 80s and 90s. And fast forward to say latter 2000s and later, broadband, you know, everything is totally different now. Everybody can advertise machines. Everybody's an auctioneer. Everybody has eBay. Everybody is a little bit more savvy and into thinking that they can beat the system. They don't have to be captive to one retailer 
Now, some people just like buying used or new machines and, and that's good. Some people are afraid of auctions. A lot of people find auctions tantalizing. It's been two and a half years since you've been on the sand. Uh, a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. Let me address some of the things you said, though, if I may. Yeah. Yeah. Now that, that was I was priming you. I mean, you opened up a whole area of discussion about transition, about what happened. And for years and years and years, the live auction sale was the, the thing. I mean, it was the accepted standard of, you know, you'd, we'd travel all over the world and our buyers would travel all over the world and, and come to the auction sales. And once in a while, we would have somebody give us a proxy bid and we would do the bidding for them. But typically, we would have a big on-site crowd and we would walk from machine to machine to machine. And then in 1999 and 2000, at the advent of the internet, it really changed the way auction sales worked. And what it did was it enabled buyers from around the world to participate in an auction sale that they would not normally participate in. Because depending on the technology, you could have people in Hong Kong, India, Turkey, Europe, Spain, uh, England, Canada, United States, all participating in the same auction sale at the same time without the requirements of travel. I know. And now that seems like, yeah, of course. But, but there was a transition period to get people to that level of comfort. And, you know, eBay sold or eBay came around and their stock went through the roof. And there were certain auction companies that sold for a lot of money because they were at the right place at the right time with the right relationships. But what it did was it really put out there that anybody could really become an auctioneer. And it really it lowered the barrier to entry into the auction business, the perception of the barrier to entry. It, it lowered the perception of the barrier to entry. And when, what I'm referring to is that the typical auction company would have to have certain things in-house in order to be a successful auction company. You'd have to have an auctioneer that knew what he was or she was selling would know how to auction successfully. And, and a good auctioneer can make a good auction sale, a great auction sale, and can rescue you from a disaster to a good auction sale. You have to have a marketing department. You have to have uh, a logistics side for setting up the facility and presenting the, the assets properly. And what happened was when eBay started and developed the internet timed auction sales, now, all of a sudden, everybody could be an auctioneer. And I'm sure all the auctioneers loathed this. They were like, who do you think you are? Dealers became auctioneers. And there is an inherent conflict when a dealer becomes an auctioneer. Because it's a perception. You guys always say that. No, but it's in many cases, not always, but in many cases, it's true. There's a different mindset and mentality that an auctioneer has compared to a dealer. And I've had many, many, many dealer partners. But when I watch a dealer become an auctioneer and they still continue their dealerships, there is an inherent conflict because they're there bidding against their customers. That's true. And they're trying to buy assets. And it takes, it takes the allure that drives people to an auction sale. People go to an auction sale because they think there's a chance that they might be able to get something for a bargain. And when a dealer owns the deal or a dealer is the auctioneer, there's less likelihood of that happening. And I think a lot of buyers know that. Now, is that true today compared to what it was you know, 15 years ago? Yeah, I still think that there's some truth to that. 
it might have lessened a little bit. But I still think that there are auction companies that started off as dealers that, you know, the, the dealers saw the auctioneers running all these sales and making a lot of money. They didn't always make money, but the appearance of us making a lot of money, uh, the dealers thought, you know, I, I can do that myself. And when, when the software and the technology came out that enabled them to run their own auction sales, like, I don't need an auctioneer. Well, I don't necessarily believe that because I started in the auction space and I, I, I know what it takes to be an auction company and how to run sales successfully. But I, I think there was a divide there. And I, I really miss the camaraderie of working with some of the dealers that I used to work with that are no longer working with auction companies and they're just doing it on their own. I miss that. Uh, are they generating success? Uh, yeah, probably they are. When anybody decides to run an auction sale, there are certain things that absolutely must occur. For example, you must have a proper marketing campaign. You must present the assets in a proper fashion in order to satisfy the buyers. And, um, you know, there was a learning curve. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie. It seemed sometimes Graf Pinkert's gone, well, shit, we know how to market. We have a lot of contacts. What are we giving an auctioneer this big cut for? Now, I understand the value. I agree with you. But you can obviously understand this feeling we might get. And also then when you see other dealers that are doing it, you go, if they can do it, why shouldn't we? You know, As far as Graf Pinkert's concerned, we just don't feel like it. I think if you really wanted to develop into an auctioneer, it could work uh, as a dealer slash auctioneer if you kind of sold it the right way. But for us, it's more like, let's do our thing and then let the auctioneer do their thing. Trust them. They can take a piece. We'll take a piece and it'll be fine. Yes, I miss that. <laughs> All you need is some software. That's true. What's the thing you miss so much about being on the stand? What, How it feels to be on the stand? All right. But I, I do want to just make a statement based on what you just said, though. And I do understand. I do understand how dealers feel or felt about be becoming an auctioneer and the reason why they did become an auctioneer. But to answer your most current question is there was a, a learning curve for me. I loved being on the stand. When I first got on the stand, I hated it because I was I was I had stage fright. I couldn't talk in front of a group of people. I mean I, I remember being in college. I had to give a report in my, my one of my classes, and there were six people in the class, and I got up, and there was a cute girl in the class, and I'm, I'm looking over there, and I'm, I started going, my name is Robert Levy, and uh, and uh, blah, 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 <laughs> you know, and I couldn't do it, but but I, I eventually, because that's what we do, my dad forced me to get up there, and the first time I did it was just dreadful, and the second time I did it was worse than the first time, but then, then I, I thought to myself, you know, if I stick with it, and I can do it, I think I will be good at it. And I stuck with it and I began to really enjoy the mental challenge, the physical challenge, and interacting with the crowd and the whole experience of being able to coordinate my speech without thinking as I'm thinking about I'm selling this. Was it hard to learn to talk fast? Um, I mean, it, you just do it over and over and over and over and over again, and it just becomes first nature. Some people will never get it. And talking fast is not necessarily what makes a good auctioneer. It helps as long as when you speak quickly, your enunciation is clear enough that everybody in the room understands what you're saying. Because you can talk as fast as you want or as slowly as you want. If nobody understands what you're saying, 
you're not going to get people to bid because they don't understand what you're saying. So, so yes, it does take a while. Your brain has to click in so that it's automatic because you're thinking about, I have a row of RB8s. I just sold one last week for 28.5. I got eight of them here. Ah, there's the guy that bought three of them. He's standing over there. And after the RB8s, I got the RA6s. And, and they all have to be sequenced properly. You can't just like willy-nilly sequence them, you know, any way you want. There's, there's logic. Right. So you, you, when you're in the middle of an auction, you kind of like, it's like you're an athlete and you're improvising. You're, you're kind of like looking around and getting the feel of things and, and you'll adjust. Oh, you have to. You have to. You got to look at what the buyers are thinking, where they are, how they want to bid. You have things and you have to prepare for it. Like every every auction sale I did, I would spend the night before, the day before the auction sale, walking the plant, looking at the catalog and understanding how things were lotted. And I would always work with my setup guys to make sure that they were lotted properly. So I had the ability to present the assets in a way with flexibility so that I could satisfy my buyers and move the sale along quickly. You know, thinking about buyer's choice and privilege and, and options and, and the order of sale and how much I got for the last one. And I got one coming up in 15 minutes and who's in the, you know, and I got to get milk on the way home. And, you know, I mean, just the brain, the way it works. I mean, it's incredible, but it takes a long time to really get to a place of comfort on the stand. And yes, I loved it. I miss it. I wish that I still could do that. I can do it. But the way that the industry has changed, uh, there really aren't that many live auction sales anymore. On the next episode of Swarfcast. All right. So you're going in, you want to get a Sugami. What's your tactic to beat the other people out and to, you know, not let the auctioneer take advantage of you? Have you ever been asked that question before? From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. 